Section 37 of The Glories of Ireland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Glories of Ireland. Edited by Joseph Dunn and P.J. Lennox. Section 37. Irish Writers of English. By P.J. Lennox, B.A. Lit. D. The Gaelic literature of Ireland is not only of wonderful volume and priceless worth, but is also of great antiquity, whereas the English literature of Ireland, while also of considerable extent and high value, is of comparatively modern origin. The explanation of this fact is that for more than six centuries after the Anglo-Norman invasion of 1169, the Irish language continued to be both the spoken and, with Latin, the written organ of the great mass of the Irish people and that for nearly the whole of that period those English settlers who did not become, as the well-known phrase has it, more Irish than the Irish themselves, by adopting the native language, customs, and sentiments, were kept too busy in holding, defending, and extending their territory to devote themselves to literary pursuits. Hence we need not wonder if, leaving out of account merely technical works like Lionel Power's Treatise on Music, written in 1395, we find that the English literature of Ireland takes its comparatively humble origin late in the 16th century. For more than two centuries thereafter, owing to the fact that the native Irish, because they were Catholics, were debarred by law from an education, the writing of English remained almost exclusively in the hands of members or descendants of the Anglo-Irish colony, who, with scarcely an exception, were Protestants and had as their principal Irish seat of learning the then essentially Protestant institution, Trinity College, Dublin. Alien in race and creed though these writers mainly were, they have nevertheless spread a halo of glory around their adopted country, and have won the admiration, and often the affection, of Irishmen of every shade of religious and political belief. For example, there is no Irishman who is not proud of Molyneux and Swift, of Goldsmith and Burke, of Grattan and Sheridan. From the 19th century onward, Irish Catholics have taken their full share in the production of English literature. Here, however, it will be necessary to consider the writers of none but the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, as in other pages of this volume considerable attention has been given to those of later date. 1. 16th century. Richard Stanihurst, 1547-1618, born in Dublin, but educated at Oxford, is the first representative of the 16th century with whom we are called upon to deal. He belonged to a family long settled in or near Dublin, and of some note in municipal annals. Under the direction of the Jesuit martyr Edmund Campion, Stanahurst wrote a description, as well as a portion of the history, of Ireland for Hollinshead's Chronicles, published in 1577. He also translated, 1582, the first four books of Virgil his Aeneas into quantitative hexameters, on the unsound pedantic principles which Gabriel Harvey was at that time trying so hard to establish in English prosody. But the experiment, which turned out so badly in the master's hands, fared even worse in those of the disciple, and Stanhurst's lines will always stand as a noted specimen of inept translation and ridiculous versification. Equally inartistic was his version of some of the psalms in the same meter. In Latin, he wrote a profound commentary on Porphyry, the Neoplatonic mystic. Stanhurst, who was uncle to James Usher, the celebrated Protestant Archbishop of Armagh, was himself a convert to Catholicity, and on the death of his second wife became a priest, 
and wrote in Latin some edifying books of devotion. Two of his sons joined the Jesuit order. He died at Brussels in 1618. Stanihurst viewed Ireland entirely from the English standpoint, and in his description and history is, consciously or unconsciously, greatly biased against the native race. If we may take it as certain that modern investigation is correct in asserting that Thomas Campion was a native of Dublin, a notable addition will have been made to the ranks of Irish-born writers of English at this period. Thomas Campion, 1567-1620, wherever born, spent most of his life in London. He was a versatile genius, for after studying law he took up medicine, and although practicing as a physician, he yet found time to write four masks and many lyrics, and to compose a goodly quantity of music. Some of his songs appeared as early as 1591. Among his works is a treatise entitled Observations in the Art of English Poesy, 1602, in which, strange to say, he, a born lyrist, advocated unrhymed verse and quantitative measures, but fortunately his practice did not usually square with his theory. His masks were written for occasions, such as the marriage of Lord Hayes, 1607, the nuptials of Princess Elizabeth and the Elector Palatine, 1613, and the ill-starred wedding of Somerset and the quondam Countess of Essex in the same year. In these masks are embedded some of his best songs. Others of his lyrics appeared in several books of airs between 1601 and 1617. Many of them were written to music, sometimes music of his composing. Such dainty things as Now hath Flora robbed her bowers, and Hark all ye ladies that do sleep, possess the charms of freshness and spontaneity, and his devotional poetry, especially Awake, Awake, Thou Heavy Sprite, and Never Weather-Beaten Sail, More Willing Bent to Shore, makes almost as wide an appeal. 2. 17th Century Passing by with regret the illustrious 17th century names of Philip O'Sullivan Bear, Sir James Ware, Luke Wadding, Hugh Ward, John Colgan, and John Lynch, because their bearers wrote in Latin, and those of the Four Masters and Geoffrey Keating, because they wrote in Irish, we are first brought to a pause in the 17th century by the imposing figure of him whom, at a later day, Johnson justly called the, quote, great luminary of the Irish Protestant Church, end quote, none other than the Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of Ireland, James Usher himself. James Usher, 1581 to 1656, born in Dublin and among the earliest students of the newly founded Trinity College, was in intellect and scholarship one of the greatest men that Ireland has ever produced. Selden describes him as learned to a miracle, ad miraculum doctus, and Canon Dalton in his History of Ireland says of him that, quote, he was not unworthy to rank even with Dunce Scotus, and when he died he left in his own church neither an equal nor a second, end quote. Declining the high office of Provost of Trinity, Usher was made Bishop of Meath, and was afterwards promoted to the Primatial See. His fine intellect was unfortunately marred by narrow religious views, and in many ways he displayed his animus against those of his countrymen who did not see eye to eye with him in matters of faith and doctrine. For example, it was he who in 1626 drew up the Irish Protestant bishop's protest against toleration for Catholics, therein showing a bigotry which consorted badly with his reputation as a scholar. 
On account of his well-known attitude towards Catholicism, he was naturally unpopular with those who professed the ancient creed, and hence, when the rebellion of 1641 broke out, much of his property was destroyed by the enraged insurgents. His person escaped violence, for he happened to be in England at the time, engaged in the vain task of trying to effect an accommodation between Charles I and the English Parliament. He never returned to his see, and died in London. Usher's collected works fill seventeen stately volumes. His magnum opus is undoubtedly the Annales Veteris et Novi Testamenti. It is written in Latin, and is a chronological compendium of the history of the world from the creation to the dispersion of the Jews under Vespasian. Published at Leiden, London, Paris, and Oxford, it gained for its author a European fame. His books written in English deal mostly with theological or controversial subjects, and while they display wide reading, great acumen, and keen powers of argumentation, they yet do not do full justice to his genius. Those which he published in Dublin are A Discourse of the Religion Anciently Professed by the Irish and British, 1622, in which he tried to show that the ritual and discipline of the Church, as originally established in the British Isles, were in agreement with the Church of England, and opposed to the Catholic Church on the matters in dispute between them. An answer to a challenge made by a Jesuit in Ireland, 1624, in which his aim was to disprove the contention set forth earlier in the same year by a Jesuit, that uniformity of doctrine had always been maintained by the Catholic Church, and Emmanuel, or the Mystery of the Incarnation. He published in England The Original of Bishops, A Body of Divinity, The Principles of Christian Religion, and other works. So great was Usher's reputation that when he died, Cromwell relaxed in his favour one of the strictest laws of the Puritans, and allowed him to be buried with the full service of the Church of England, and with great pomp, in Westminster Abbey. Among Usher's other claims to distinction, it should be noted that it was he who, in 1621, discovered the celebrated Book of Kells, which had long been lost. This marvel of the illuminator's art passed, with the remainder of his collection of books and manuscripts, to Trinity College, Dublin, in 1661, and to this day it remains one of the most treasured possessions of the noble library of that institution. Sir John Denham, 1615-1669, a Dublin man by birth, took an active part on the side of Charles I against the Parliament during the Civil War and subsequently was conspicuous in the intrigues that led to the restoration of Charles II. In his own day he had a great reputation as a poet. His tragedy The Sophie and his translation of the Psalms are now forgotten, but he is still well remembered for one piece, Cooper's Hill, in which occur the well-known lines addressed to the River Thames. Oh, could I flow like thee and make thy stream my great example as it is my theme, though deep yet clear though gentle, yet not dull, strong without rage, without o'erflowing, full. Another Dublin-born man was Wentworth Dillon, Earl of Roscommon, 1633-1684. He had the good fortune to win encomiums both from Dryden and from Pope. One of his merits, as pointed out by the latter, is that, in all Charles's days, Roscommon only boasts unspotted bays. He translated from Virgil, Lucan, Horace, and Guarini, wrote prologues, epilogues, and other occasional verses, 
but is now principally remembered for his poetical essay on translated verse, 1681, in which he develops principles previously laid down by Cowley and Denham. To his credit, be it said, he condemns indecency, both as want of sense and as bad taste. He was honoured with a funeral in Westminster Abbey. Johnson records that, at the moment of his death, Roscommon uttered with great energy and devotion the following two lines from his own translation of the Dies Irae. My God, my Father, and my Friend, do not forsake me in my end. Robert Boyle, 1627-1691, to one of the great founders of the Royal Society, 1662, was the son of the great Earl of Cork, and was born at Lismore, County Waterford. He takes rank among the principal experimental philosophers of his age, and he certainly rendered valuable services to the advancement of science. Most of his writings, which are very voluminous, are naturally of a technical character, and therefore do not belong to literature. But his occasional reflections on several subjects, 1665, a strange mixture of triviality and seriousness, was germinal in this sense that it led to two celebrated jeux d'esprit, namely Butler's occasional reflection on Dr. Charlton's feeling a dog's pulse at Gresham College, and Swift's pious meditation upon a broomstick, in the style of the Honourable Mr. Boyle. Indeed, one of Boyle's reflections, that upon the eating of oysters, is reputed to have rendered a still more signal service to literature, for in its two concluding paragraphs is contained the idea which, under the transforming hand of the master satirist, eventually took the world by storm when it appeared, fully developed, as Gulliver's Travels. His brother, Roger Boyle, 1621-1679, who figures largely as a soldier and statesman in Irish and English history under his title of Lord Brawhill, was an alumnus of Trinity College, Dublin. During the Civil War, he was a royalist until the death of Charles I, when he changed sides and aided Cromwell materially in his Irish campaign. When the Lord Protector died, Brawhill made another right-about face, and, crossing to his native country, worked so energetically and successfully that he made Ireland solid for the restoration of Charles II. For this service, he was rewarded by being created Earl of Orrery. He was the author of six tragedies and two comedies, some of which, when produced, proved gratifyingly popular. He is noted for having been the first to write tragedy in rhyme, thereby setting an example that was followed with avidity, for a time, by Dryden and others. He also wrote poems, a romance called Parthenissa, 1654, and a treatise on the art of war, 1677. From whatever point of view considered, Lord Orrery was a remarkable member of a remarkable family. His son, John Boyle, Earl of Cork and Orrery, 1707-1762, in virtue of his translation of Pliny's letters, his remarks on the life and writings of Swift, and his letters from Italy, has some claims to recognition in the field of literature. Charles Leslie, 1650-1722, a Dubliner by birth, was son of that John Leslie, Bishop of Raffaux and Clotter, who lived through a whole century, from 1571 to 1671, and who was 79 years of age when Charles, his sixth son, was born. Educated first at Enniskillen, and afterwards at Trinity College, Dublin, Charles Leslie studied law in London, but eventually abandoned that profession and entered the ministry. He was of a disputatious character, 
and in particular went to great lengths in opposing the pro-Catholic activities of James II. Nevertheless, when the revolution of 1688 came, he took the side of the deposed monarch, and loyally adhered to his Jacobite principles for the remainder of his life. He eventually joined the old pretender on the continent, and endeavored to convert him to Protestantism, but failing therein, he returned to Ireland, where he died at Glasslough in County Monaghan. Many years of Leslie's life were devoted to disputes with Catholics, Quakers, Socinians, and Deists, and the seven volumes which his writings fill prove that he was an extremely able controversialist. His best-known work is the famous treatise A Short and Easy Method with the Deists, published in 1698. The Irish note, tone, or temper is not conspicuous in any of the writings so far named, unless when it is conspicuous by its absence. But it appears plainly for the first time in Molyneux's Case of Ireland Being Bowed by Laws Made in England, stated, 1698. William Molyneux has always ranked as an Irish patriot. His was one of the spirits invoked by Grattan in his great speech, 1782, on the occasion on which he carried his celebrated Declaration of Independence in the Irish Parliament. When the English Act of 1698, which was meant to destroy, and did destroy, the Irish woolen industry came before the Irish House of Commons for ratification, Molyneux was the only voice raised against its adoption. His protest was followed by the publication of his case stated, which is a classic on the general relations between Ireland and England, and contained arguments so irrefutable that it drove the English Parliament to fury, and was by that body ordered to be burned by the common hangman. It is a remarkable coincidence that Molyneux opens his argument by laying down, in almost identical words, the principles which stand at the beginning of the American Declaration of Independence. John Toland, 1669-1722, was born near Redcastle in County Derry, and was at first a Catholic, but subsequently became a freethinker. His Christianity Not Mysterious, 1696, marks an epoch in religious disputes, for it started the deistical controversy, which was so distinctive a feature of the first half of the 18th century. It shared a similar fate to that of the case stated, though on very different grounds, and was ordered by the Irish Parliament to be burned by the hangman. Toland wrote many other books, among which are Amintor, 1699, Nazarenus, 1702, Pantheisticon, History of the Druids, and Hypatia. All his books show versatility and wide reading, and are characterized by a pointed, vigorous, and aggressive style. George Farquhar, 1678-1707, a dairyman, and Thomas Southern, 1660-1746, born near Dublin, were distinguished playwrights who began their respective careers in the 17th century. Farquhar left Trinity College Dublin as an undergraduate and became an actor, but owing to his accidental killing of another player, he left the stage and secured a commission in the army. He soon turned his attention to the writing of plays and was responsible in all for eight comedies. He has left us some characters that are very humorous and at the same time true to life, such as Scrub the Servant in The Bow's Stratagem, and Sergeant Kite in The Recruiting Officer. His Boniface, the landlord in the former of these two plays, has become the type, as well as the ordinary quasi-facetious nickname, of an innkeeper. He was advancing in his art, for his last comedy, The Bow's Stratagem, 1707, 
is undoubtedly his best, and had he lived longer, he died before he was thirty, he might have bequeathed to posterity something even more noteworthy. As Lee Hunt says of him, quote, he was becoming gayer and gayer when death, in the shape of a sore anxiety, called him away as if from a pleasant party and left the house ringing with his jest. End quote. Southern was also a student of Trinity College, Dublin. At the age of 18, however, he left his alma mater and went to London to study law. This profession he in turn abandoned for the drama. His first play, The Persian Prince of the Loyal Brother, had a remarkable success when performed and secured him an ensign's commission in the army, 1685. Here promotion came to him rapidly, and by 1688 he had risen to captain's rank. The revolution of that year, however, cut off all further hope of advancement, and he once more turned his attention to the writing of plays. His productions, number 10. His tragedies, Isabella, or The Fatal Marriage, 1694, and Arunico, 1696, both founded on tales by Mrs. Aphra Bain, are powerful presentations of human suffering. His comedies are amusing but gross. Southern had business ability enough to make playwriting pay, and the amounts he received for his productions fairly staggered his friend Dryden. It is to this faculty that Pope alludes when he says that Southern was one whom heaven sent down to raise the price of prologues and of plays. He was apparently of amiable and estimable character, for he secured and retained the friendship not only of Dryden, a comparatively easy matter, but also that of Pope, a much more difficult task. Known as the poet's nester, Southern spent his declining years in peaceful retirement and in the enjoyment of the fortune which he had amassed by his pen. Nahum Tate, 1652-1715, a Dubliner by birth, and Nicholas Brady, 1659-1726, a Bandon man, have secured a certain sort of twin immortality by their authorized metrical version of the Psalms, 1696, which gradually took the place of the older rendering by Sternhold and Hopkins. Tate became Poet Laureate in 1690, in succession to Shadwell, and was appointed Historiographer Royal in 1702. He wrote the bulk of the second part of Absalom and Achitophel, with a wonderfully close imitation of Dryden's manner, besides several dramatic pieces and poems. Between Tate, Shadwell, Usedon, and Pye lies the unenviable distinction of being the worst of the laureates of England. Brady was a clergyman who, after the pleasant fashion of that day, was a pluralist on a small scale, for he had the living of Richmond for thirty years from 1696, and while holding that, held also in succession the livings of Stratford-on-Avon and Clapham. He added further to his income, and doubtless to his anxieties, by keeping a school at Richmond. He wrote a tragedy entitled The Rape, a History of the Goths and Vandals, a translation of the Aeneid into blank verse, and an ode for St. Cecilia's Day, but unless for his share in the version of the Psalms, his literary reputation is well-nigh as dead as the dodo. Ireland somewhat doubtfully claims to have given birth to Mrs. Susanna Sanlivre, circa 1667 to 1723, who, after a rather wild youth, set down to literary pursuits and domestic contentment, when in 1706 she married Queen Anne's head cook, Joseph Sanlivre, with whom she lived happily ever after. Her first play, The Provoked Husband, a tragedy, was produced in 1700, 
and then she went on the stage as an actress. She wrote in all nineteen dramatic pieces, some of which had the honor of being translated into French and German. Her most original play was A Bold Stroke for a Wife, 1717. End of section 37. Recording by Owen Cook in Potawatomi, Ceded Land.